much Rob and please be praying for our teachers and our students as well as they go down to their class. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 2 as we continue to walk through Acts together. And as we do that, let me just, there's a show growing up called 911. It was a I don't know why I enjoyed it. I don't know why, but uh, it was a show that I enjoyed watching. And the whole premise of the show is 911 phone calls and the dramatization of that whole show. And I still remember to this day one of these things where uh, there was uh, somebody trapped in a uh, like a sewer, and this mother comes along and pushes the uh, sewer lid. I don't know what they call it, cap thing, and pushes it off. I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. Like, have you ever tried lifting those things? They're heavy. And here was this woman just coming up and just pushing it because there was a child, her child, that was trapped underneath. This thing is actually called hysterical strength. It's this ability, this unnatural and amazing strength that, that comes in stressful situations. It's a shot of adrenaline into the bloodstream that allows us to get that what we think is supernatural strength to do the things that seem to be impossible. And we're all faced with situations that we think we don't have the strength or the ability to do what is needed to be done. And here in Acts, we see a similar situation with a group of people, both men and women, from this backcountry place called Galilee, of no stature or education faced with this mission that's impossible to do, to bring the message about Jesus to the ends of the world. That means encountering languages. You know, for if you're like me, I'm really bad at languages. I have a hard enough time speaking English, let alone adding in another language. But it's not going to be impossible. So Luke puts the Holy Spirit front and center right here in Acts chapter 2 as we witness the power that will enable the disciples to do exactly what God, what Jesus has commanded them to do as he ascended into heaven. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and you can follow along with me. It says this, the word of the Lord says, When the day of the Pentecost arrived, there were all together in one place, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now... There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya, belonging with Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
But others mocked, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Awesome God, we thank you so much for today and the chance we have to just come and to continue to worship you together. So Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds and our ears to worship in the listening of the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that this would continue to be an act of worship as we seek to make much of you. And Lord, there's no way that I could do this on my own. So Lord, I want to preach that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so won't you make this turn out well? Lord, use this. Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach the sermon with what is needed. And use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. Sorry, in verses 1 to 4, we see this rushing like a wind situation that comes. The time of waiting is done. That time of prayer, uh, 10-day period between Jesus' ascension and this Pentecost time is now done. They are remaining together in prayer during this time. And then by verse 2, without warning and with great power, something amazing happens. Suddenly, the whole house was filled with what looked like, what felt like it was rushing winds. Notice the word like, it's important. Notice that it's there. And what's happening here is a description of what something is like. It's, it's not a natural phenomenon. It's nothing, it is Luke seeking to describe for us as the readers of what it was like to be in that room as they were praying and the sudden thing that about to happen. I remember when Seth and I were first married, uh, we lived in Hamilton, and I was a wise, smart, newly married man, and I took my country wife and brought her to central Hamilton. And if you ever know what central Hamilton is like, that was not a good idea. But we had this house, this little house, this little bungalow house that we had, and um, we, we also lived in not the best area of town. And, uh, and one of the things that we had right across the street, I kid you, like maybe 20 meters across the street, uh, like a child could throw a ball and hit the train tracks sort of thing. Like it was really close. There was the train tracks. And every once in a while, you'd have this train go by from Stelco or DeFasco or some sort of other metal mill, and then you would feel the ground beginning to shake and the windows beginning to rattle even before you could hear anything coming. And then suddenly there's this massive train with all of these industrial uh, uh, wagon things going through. And that's what Luke is seeking to give us a picture of what's happening here. Luke is giving us a picture of what it would be like if you were sitting right there in that room praying with the early church and just all of a sudden like a mighty wind flowing from all four corners of the earth filling this. See, wind in the Old Testament is a sign of the presence of God. God's conversation with Elijah gives us that idea as well. In, 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 in 2 Kings. And as this presence of God comes into this room, there are these tongues that look like fire that begin to appear, and they begin to rest on each of the people that were in this room. You've got to imagine, at this stage of time, you're quiet, you're praying together, there may be this murmuring, and all of a sudden there's this crazy loud noise, and then all of a sudden you see these things like fire coming to fall on you. You begin to pay attention. And what are these tongues? What are the tongue of fires? There's always the question that comes. 
but this wind-like sound and these little pieces of fire resting on individuals mean this simple thing, that God is there with them in that place. In 1 Kings, as I was saying, you see that the wind comes as he passes by Elijah, as God's presence passes by Elijah. In Exodus 13, we see God guiding his people through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And both this fire and this wind point to this one thing, that God was in that room with them as this moment of time. And Jesus has just ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit invades the earth by filling the apostles for the witness of, of all the great works that God has done and will do. And as the Spirit comes in there, the, the Holy Spirit begins to rest upon them. But what is that resting? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes and rests on them? And the Holy Spirit is resting on them as this outward showing of what is taking place among each of them as they gather in that upper room. That the presence of God was with his disciples in that place as Ezekiel 37 was being fulfilled. I love Ezekiel 37. This is what Jesus had promised to, know, to, to now happen. And they began in verse 4 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means and what the Holy Spirit does. And this is important because we've got to remember that uh, for us, the challenge as we're reading through Acts is, is the Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Is it a description of what is happening or is it telling us that we need to do something? But an idea of a biblical understanding of what the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does is important as we look at this. There is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens at the very moment of salvation and that the Holy Spirit indwells a believer who continues to make that person more like Christ and unites us not only with Christ but to one another. In Christ, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, you don't suddenly lose the Holy Spirit. That would mean to lose your salvation. The Holy Spirit seals us with Christ. And if we can lose the Holy Spirit, we're in a lot of trouble. So let's keep that in mind. So we're not talking about salvation in this context. Being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't like some sort of being fully charged, like I plugged my phone into the outlet or something. Or some sort of heavenly gasoline that fills our tank. So what are we talking about, when, uh, about how the Holy Spirit works? We're not talking about how the Holy Spirit has applied to the disciples or to you and to me what Christ has accomplished for his church. We're not, talking about how, uh, salvation, we, we're not talking about how salvation is purposed by the Father and accomplished by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is in Christ alone. Our salvation is by His Spirit alone. So to be filled by the Spirit isn't talking about salvation. He is talking about the capacity to do something. So what is that capacity to do? What is going to happen? to empower his disciples for service, to enable the disciples to fulfill the mission of Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we see here in other instances as well, in Acts, in Acts 4, verse 31, we see the Christians are filled with the Spirit through prayer. We see in Acts 6, verse 3, that seven who will take care of the widows are filled with the Spirit. In Acts 9, we see Ananias tells Paul who will be filled with the Spirit. 
So being filled by the Spirit is an empowering of the believer, those who are in Christ, in a special experience to carry out the mission that Jesus has called them to do in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in the hearts of salvation, but right here, this is a specific time, a people, a place, where there will be filled with the power to do great things in this day. So that filling of the Holy Spirit was a necessity for this special era in the early church we see in Acts and is different for every generation of Christian that is after this. In this instance, this is a special equipping of a special group of people to be carried out in a specific way. But what is the result of the Holy Spirit filling that we see? We see it later on, and and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. See, the Holy Spirit is empowering the disciples for that service. And that service at this moment is the crowd that is forming from when they heard that crazy sound of the wind rushing into this building, and that crowd begins to come around this, this house, and they're kind of wondering what's going on, because I would. But we need to understand what it means by tongues. See, in our culture, in our Christian culture, there's this idea, there's two types of tongues, and I might get in trouble for this. Uh, There's two types. There's angelic tongues and there's language tongues. Here we're talking about language tongues. The ability to speak in another language. When we're looking at the text, the miracle of hearing doesn't happen. The miracle of speaking happens. So the people are hearing a language that they already know. There's no interpretation that is happening. So when we're reading this text, we're talking about languages that are known, like French or Spanish or Arabic or something like that, although none of those languages existed back then. So we need to understand that what is being said is being heard. And as the Spirit gave them utterance, it is the working of the Holy Spirit within them that enables them to do exactly what is about to happen. These languages were only able to happen because the Spirit enabled. For you and I, this is a reminder, just as much as it was true for the people speaking in different languages, that nothing is accomplished apart from God. Nothing. And this is true with reaching out to the nations or reaching out to our neighbors across the hall or across the streets. We need to remember passages like Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Philippians 2.12, therefore, my beloveds, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as we're looking at this verses, verses 1 to 4, I think about Calvin's and how Calvin put it this way. He said, if the preacher had spoken in only one tongue, everyone would have thought that Christ was confined to a small corner of Judea. But as the Holy Spirit invades and fills these disciples in their lives, they began to speak in tongues that could be heard from all those who were around, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and God was with them in a unique way, in a unique time. And the outcome of the Holy Spirit is a gifting that enables the early church to further the mission of Jesus Christ, to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, not just in Jerusalem, not even in just Judea or Samaria, but to the ends of the earth.
How else could a bunch of people from a backwatered country like Galilee do these things outside of the power of God? It's impossible. And we see the power of the Holy Spirit in verses 5 to 13. As we are introduced to the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke begins to set the stage for us. And we see in verse 5 there are devoted Jews from all over celebrating the Passover. And at this time, 10 days later, there's the Pentecost, which is the festival of weeks, which is a, a giant Thanksgiving, essentially. The Passover is remembering that God had redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them across the wilderness and brought them to the promised land that he had promised so long before. And the Festival of Weeks was a celebration of the bounty of that promised land. And Acts marks the end of an old system and a dynamic and the beginning of, of a new one. There's a new covenant come, that comes with Christ dying and rising again. The Passover was a time of remembering how God used the angel of death to, to, in the last plague as God would call his people out of Egypt into the promised land. This is when God would redeem his people and they would sacrifice a lamb and they would take the blood of that lamb and they put it on their doorposts to, as a sign of trusting that God would redeem them, that God would provide. But this was just a foreshadowing. This is just a foreshadowing of something even greater. This is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Jesus Christ. The Passover had been fulfilled in Christ. The last one had come. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one whose death and resurrection fulfilled the requirements of the law. Jesus' sacrifice was to end all sacrifices. And God's redemption of his people from Egypt and the Passovers that, that remembered it was just a shadow of something even greater. So all of these people here were celebrating a, 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 an event and a, and a festival that pointed to something even greater. And this greater thing is the gospel. That God is holy, that we have sinned against him, and because of our sin, we deserve one thing, and that is hell itself. Death. Completely separated from God. But through Jesus Christ, who was the last Passover lamb, who was the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, anyone who, who rests in his finished work, who believes that his work is enough, who believes in that, that Christ died for our sins and rose again, will not have death, but have eternal life. And just as the last Passover had come to an end with the Lamb of God dying on the cross for the sins of the people, the last Pentecost would come. And then verse 6, we come along, and when people heard the noise of the wind, they come to see what happens. I'm that type of guy who, if I hear a noise, I'll, if I'm not fighting the temptation, I'll look. Right? We all do it. The phone goes off in the church service. Everyone stares at the person who has the phone, which is a reminder that you should turn your phone off. And for the record, it's never the young people because they never have their ringer on. Okay? It's always on vibrator. When the people heard the noise of the wind, they come and see what happens. And people could hear in his or her own language and I spent some time uh, in, in different parts of the world. I've been in South America. I've been to the Middle East. And it's interesting. Maybe you're walking down in a marketplace or, or wherever, and maybe your first language isn't English here. 
right? And you're walking around in our foyer, and then you hear somebody else speaking in the language that you know. What do you do? What? Sorry? You start walking over there. Hey, brothers, sisters. But as I would walk around in a marketplace in one of these countries or whatever, and suddenly you hear English, you go, ooh, nice. <laughs> this is a joy and a pleasure. Someone understands me, and I understand them. I remember specifically this happening when I was in Jordan and I was learning Arabic and don't ask me any of it. I only know like two words now. But my language skills are really bad as I was saying. This is why I'm not a missionary. One of the reasons. And I had to take a taxi and I was by myself. I had to take a taxi. I was in Amman, which is the capital, and I had to take a taxi from one end of town all the way to the other side of town where I was staying in my, in my, uh, my apartment building. And I was like, oh, man, Lord, help me. Right? Because I had to remember directions, like left and right, and all these things. And I'm so thankful that with my broken Arabic and the taxi driver's better English, I got back. But as the people heard those languages, they began to wonder about things. They were confused as how they could hear what was being said. Because in verses 7 and 8, we see this is not lining up. Who are these people? They already know who these people are. They know that they're from Galilee. These are the country folk. They aren't the educated type. So how did they learn a language in, in, in a way in 10, in 10 days or whatever it was? The crowd was amazed because how could they un, these uneducated people learn all of these languages all at one time? And the answer, they couldn't. They couldn't. It was the working of the Holy Spirit that empowered them to do just that. If you or I, this is a stark reminder that when we keep telling God that we can't do something, you might want to rethink your thoughts that I don't have the words, that I'm not elegant in speech, I'm not strong enough, I'm not old enough, I'm not young enough, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And here we see the Holy Spirit empowering his people to do exactly what God has called them to do. No part of this is possible outside of God. So the answer is yes, you're right, you can't do it on your own. You'll never hear me say, you, you'll never hear me say you can do this on your own. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit that empowers you to take the task ahead. So the question is, do you believe God is able, willing to use you and I to accomplish his mission? And we see in verses 9 and 10 from all nations and a bunch of places that I can't pronounce accurately. And this, these are born Jewish and not Jewish. A proselyte was some, a Gentile, someone who wasn't Jewish, by birth, who had been converted to Judaism. In Christ's church, God uses his church made up of every tribe and language, united as one people of God in service to his kingdom to take the message about Jesus to the ends of the world. No longer is the gospel restricted to one language. It's available directly to all nations in all languages. Next week, we're going to have Rebecca Drew here. She works for Wycliffe Translators, and God uses her to get the word of God into other people's languages so that they can hear the gospel. 
It's available for all. Salvation is now moving to every tribe and nation and language and no longer is the focus of God's redemptive plan on one tiny race of people in, the, in a geographically smaller than some of our Great Lakes area. It explodes and does exactly what God says it will do. It will increase. It was for all people of all places. And what was being proclaimed what was being said in these native languages? The mighty works of God. You notice how they're not coming up with something to say? They're just reiterating what they've already experienced. Look what God has done. Look what Jesus has done. He is no longer dead in the grave. He has risen and he has risen indeed. Maybe they even went further back. Maybe they started in Genesis, of how God spoke into being all of these things. And maybe they went from Genesis all the way through the prophets, reiterating all of what God had done that leads to this point, this moment of time. How in Genesis 2, you know, humanity really messed that one up. But Jesus, God, makes a promise. He makes a promise that the Messiah will come that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he died and that he rose again. They were witnessing all that God had done and pointing to the one who died for the sins and rose again. These pilgrims were hearing the praises of God in all the languages of the dispersed people of Israel in their own language by Galileans. All that God has done. It's an amazing thing to reflect upon these things. How God brought Jacob and his family out of Egypt to save them from starvation and then freed Israel from slavery and brought them to the promised land. And we could go on and on and on reflecting upon the great things that God has done throughout the Bible. But that's kind of like out here, transcendent, isn't it? Then we can start thinking about our own lives and the things that we've witnessed God do in our lives. And we get to go tell other people about that. About how he has provided when we thought there was no way of being provided for. We get to do the same. Even in the darkest of moments, we can reflect on all the great works God has done in our lives, starting with the big one. He saved you. Who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. But verse 13 comes along and we say, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Which makes me think, if you've ever met a drunk person, they can't speak English or whatever their native language is, let alone another one. So I don't know what these people were thinking, but what I do know is that there's a hardness of heart that is happening. There's a hardness. Some will still reject. Even when they're witnessing all of these things, they'll come and try to rationalize what they're seeing in a way that, that lines up with their hard heart and their brokenness. And this is a great reminder that miracles aren't on their own don't save. They don't save. And sometimes I think to myself, I wonder if things would be different if I lived back then and I got to see all that Jesus did. The answer is no, not outside of the Holy Spirit working in my life. We can't forget that Judas lived with Jesus for three years and was not converted. 
It's the same with the Pentecost and what all those people who were mocking the witnesses, they did not hear God's call to repentance and faith. It really shows a hardness of hearts. There's this old hymn by a guy named Joseph Hart called, Come Thy Holy Spirit Come. It's a great song that points out the Holy Spirit's presence and work in the Christian life, and it goes like this. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Let thy bright beams arise. Dispel the darkness from our minds and open all our eyes. Cheer our despondent hearts, thou heavenly parslet. Give us to lie with humble hope at our Redeemer's feet. Convince us of our sin. Then, Lord, then lead to Jesus' blood. And to our wandering view, reveal the secret love of God. Dwell therefore in our hearts, our minds from bondage free. Then we shall know and praise and love the Father, the Son, and Thee. I think this song would be a good prayer for all of us to start singing to ourselves. We should be praying, come Holy Spirit, come. Get rid of this unbelief in my heart. Help me to believe who you are and what you have done. Take this coldness that I feel with my relationship with God away from me. Show me by the word of God how much my Lord and Savior loves me. Bring me to the feet of Jesus so I can fall on my face before him in adoration and love. See, the Holy Spirit rushes into this building and empowers the people to speak in different languages the mighty works of God to a confused crowd, and they gives them the boldness to do this, to proclaim the mighty works of God. At this moment, there is an application of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection that equips and guides the church to spread the message about Jesus across the world. So what, you may be asking? What does this have to do with me? Great pastor, lots of good theology in here, but so what? How does this help me with my life? Well, here, we see a ragtag group of men and women faced with an impossible task. But they have a God who does the impossible, empowers them to fulfill his message, to proclaim the message. So what does this Pentecost show us? First, four things. First, we see is the presence of God himself in all his glory moving amongst his people, coming to his people, dwelling in his people, and filling his people. The second thing we see is that the Great Commission is world evangelism. Uh, Derek Thompson said it this way, Our vision for the church is often clouded by prejudice and small-mindedness. I thought that was pretty hard-hitting. Too often, he continues on, the burden for the mission is kept alive by a tiny minority of eager Christians who struggle to find novel ways to interest other Christians in missions. But the truth is that those who do not have a heart for missions do not have a heart of Jesus Christ. The gospel breaks down the barrier of race, language, color, and the Pentecost gives us a glimpse of what that would look like. I remember in college, um, for my undergrad, I had to take a missions class, something about well-rounded education. I was like, I was never going in the mission field. Why am I taking this? And I actually approached it that way, very cynical and with a really bad attitude. 
a quote like this hits hard. God even used my attitude at that moment to work in, in and amongst my heart. The third thing that we see about the Pentecost is this. Uh, things we see are the resources that God will use in the mission of Jesus to bring the message about Jesus. The Holy Spirit will empower the people to accomplish the mission. This is the outcome of Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The reason why the gates of hell will not prevail against it is because God is there doing it. Who's going to defeat him? The one who spoke into being all things. I'm sure Satan thought he was winning when Jesus was killed on the cross. He was shaking in his boots three days later. The fourth thing we see is God healing what is broken. What we will see here in the church is a small glimpse of what will be in heaven. The disciples were faced with an impossible task. A mission that could be done, couldn't be done on their own. And it wasn't hysterical strength that did it. Or something that empowered them. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered them to do this thing. So here's the point, is that the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' church to declare God's great work to the nations and our neighbors. The disciples were faced with an apostle mission, but God gave them the means through the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. But let me get a little bit more specific. We may think, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. What does this have to do with me when my family's falling apart and I've lost my job when I don't have enough money to buy groceries or pay for gas? And we can go on and on and on with real-life situations and what seems like more pressing situations. But let me ask you, if God was with his disciples in such a way and empowered them in such a way to accomplish this, Will God not be with you for whatever trials or circumstances that you're walking through today? And I could come and I could tell you the classic saying, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. But here's the problem, it's a lie. The Bible doesn't say that at all. What if I told the disciples that in the upper room that day? Don't worry, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. The problem is, is that God did give them more than they can handle. We, uh, we will see over and over again throughout Acts situations that God puts his disciples into that are far beyond their capabilities. And you may say, well, wait, pastor, doesn't the Bible actually say that? But that would be a misquote of 1 Corinthians. 10 verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That passage, if you haven't caught on, is talking about temptation, not trials and hardships. Sin sets the bait. But for the believer, we praise God. Sin is not irresistible. 
So the truth is, God does give trials more than we can handle. And he did for the disciples here, and he will continue to do so throughout Acts. The disciples were faced with an impossible task, and they were faced with hardships and trials. Now, what if I came to them and I said, don't worry about it, you've got this. Or don't worry, this would, this would happen in your life if God didn't think you, if you could bear it. Or God won't give you what you can't handle. Or, you're a really strong person. I know you'll get through this. Stay strong. Look at how far you've come already. You totally get, can get through this. You were given this life because you are strong enough to live it. All things I have heard been told to people, and some of them I've even said. Mitch Chase, a pastor from the States wrote a great article from the Gospel Coalition on this subject. He lays out very well two problems with this wisdom that all rooted in that, this conventional wisdom that is masquerading as biblical truth. And when we say these things, we've promised what the Bible never does. Two problems come out. First is the problem of fairness. We like fairness, don't we? I like fairness. Love it. As a child, I really loved it. That's not fair. They got to pick the movie last time. I had three younger sisters, so. We hear it all the time, that's not fair. There's something comforting about the idea that the scales are in balance, that God has assessed that we can handle and only allows those types of trials based on what we can handle. The disciples did not have that. But here's the problem with the fairness that comes with this type of wisdom. Fairness is the counter of the gospel. God has been unfair already. Let us not forget this. Because he hasn't dealt with us as our sins deserve. Matthew 5, 45 says that God has been long-suffering, forbearing, gracious, and abounding in love. The sun shines and rains fall even on the unjust. As that author of this article continues on to say in the article, God transcends the categories of fair and unfair to such a degree that we have no position to evaluate his actions or weigh his will. His ways aren't subject to our culture's standards of fairness. Disciples could have said to Jesus' command, that's not fair, or I can't do it. And they would have been right, because they can't. But they would have forgotten the other second part, that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit that will empower them to do that task. They will face trials. And in all those trials, they will be reminded of God's grace as they count themselves worthy worthy to be counted as Christ's. It's a mind-blowing thing as John and Peter later on in Acts are walking out of being beaten, praising God because they were counted worthy to be beaten. The second problem with these sayings is this. It points the person inward. It says to them, I have what it takes. Pull up your bootstraps, we say. Suck it up, princess. Oh, you've got this. 
It tells me I can bear whatever comes my way. It tells me God permits trials according to my ability to endure. Think about that, what happens when we tell someone that saying, it, it points people inward. But here's the solution. God points us Godwards. As the psalmist says in Psalm 46, 1 to 3, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, when our strength is failing under the crushing burdens, the answer is not within. God gives the power to the faint and increases the strength of the weak, as Isaiah 40, 29 says. The power comes from him to those who wait on him. So we're all going to be faced with situations that we think we don't have the strength or the ability to, to do. And here in Acts, I see this ragtag group of people from a back country called Galilee with no stature or education faced with this mission that's impossible to bring the message about Jesus to the ends of the world. And this wasn't something that they could solve with some sort of injection of adrenaline or getting themselves into some sort of circle and patting each other on the back and saying, you got this, you got this. The reality is they didn't, but God did. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' church to declare God's great works to the nations and our neighbors. So let's pray together that come, Holy Spirit, come. Get rid of this unbelief in my heart Help me to believe you are and are what you have done. Take this coldness that I feel with my relationship with God away from me. Show me by the word of God how much my Lord and Savior loves me. We, in our culture, we need more of that. Bring me to the feet of Christ so I can fall on my face before him in adoration and love. As we go out to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ completely dependent on God for the strength to do that very thing. Let us continue to worship our God together. Father God, I just thank you for today and the chance we have to continue to worship you. Uh, Lord, as I even open up my sermons almost every week, Lord, I am reminded that uh, I can't even do that on my own. Lord, how dare we think that we can do anything else you call us to on our own. So I pray that we would rely upon you, that you would remind us of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, that you've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do what you call us to do. May we live in accordance to that. May you help us to be bold with the gospel. May our lives reflect, may our lives reflect what you have done and what you have given us. Amen.